You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning, everyone. Welcome, and welcome back to the Lou family who have been gone like all summer on a missions trip. We're so glad to see you guys back. Matthew's playing the, uh, is that a violin? Is that a violin? You never know. It could be a viola or a fiddle, right? Okay. So please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to see how Paul was longing to see and serve God's people. And Romans is now in full bloom. We dove right into chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 last time. And Paul takes a common greeting and turns it into his first big teaching point. Now, in Romans 1, 8 through 15, he's going to use a common expression of friendship and relationship to develop that same point further. We're going to see how solid truth leads to solid relational connectedness. A true servant of God longs to see and to serve God's people. Now that's not easy when our minds are preoccupied with other things, right? Now, if you just think about what our minds have been on recently, uh, on the global stage, you've got hurricanes and earthquakes and other such things. You've, on the home front, you've got heartaches. Uh, we respond, though, in differing ways. We respond maybe in fear, in anger, in indifference, And some people respond with heroism. And this is how Paul responds. I just, I've got to tell you, Paul is not writing Romans out of this idealistic vacuum where somehow, you know, he's sitting there in an easy chair with air conditioning on and he's just, you know, writing this letter. He is on his third missionary journey. He is often in grave danger. Persecution is a real threat to believers whose loyalty to Christ has put them on hit lists all through the known world. And he's writing to a church in Rome. Rome was a city jam-packed with problems. It was a city of slaves. It was a city of lust and vice. It was a city of huge economic injustice. It was a city built on and fed by the violence of war. So what does Paul focus on? This is very telling. What does Paul focus on as he writes to a church in a place like that? He focuses on the gospel. It would have been easy then, as it is now, to focus on the problems and and really presume that the answer lies in something other than God in the gospel. And doesn't it seem like everything in life boils down to people and dealing with people? Uh, Kind people, mean people. Compassionate people, crazy people. And you know who they are. And you got all the resulting people joys and sorrows and troubles and people challenges. We're professing faith in Christ. We are saying that the gospel transforms our lives. And so in the heat of battle, though, uh, we find it difficult to get along find it difficult to live in peace and love people or even want to go out of our way to bless people. We're hurting, and what do we do? We avoid people. We 
withhold affection. We withdraw from fellowship. We, we hurt ourselves and others in the process, and we don't please God. That's our problem. And here is Paul longing to see and serve God's people, and, and this is an interesting thing. He had never met them. He's longing to see and serve a group of people that he had never met, and I believe that this is what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a warning right now, fair warning. This ought to spur us on to be true servants of God who long to see and serve God's people. Those we already know, those we have yet to meet. And with that, I want to ask you to uh, take your Bibles, if you're able to stand with me, and I'm going to read... Romans 1, 8 through 15. It's the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. This is the only perfect part of the worship service, the word of God. And God, by his grace, allows us uh, to enter into this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mentioned you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, have your way in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So a friend of mine uh, messages me yesterday and says, Hey, uh, you're going really quickly through Romans. Because I had said, Hey, I'm going to be preaching Chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. My first thought, this is not someone that goes to grace, and I thought to myself, you know, they could mean that in two ways. You know, like, um, there's so much in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, that you probably didn't hit in one sermon. But I fear it's the other. Well, wait, you're, you're actually going to do more than 12 sermons in the whole book of Romans? I mean, seriously, a lot of churches will be like, hey, we're going to go through Romans, and... Um, will be done in 12 weeks. We're not doing that. We're not doing that at all. I don't know how many weeks this is going to take. Don't even ask. Just enjoy it. Enjoy the journey with Jesus and me. All right, can we do that? Can we, can we do that? Last week, we set the big stage for Romans. The theme, and it's found in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which we will look at for two weeks in the two following weeks here. When we think of Romans, we should think righteousness. Righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, received through faith in Christ. It's the overarching theme. God's righteousness credited to all who are in Christ, which is a glorious truth. 
It is a glorious truth. God justifies guilty sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is, it is eternity-altering truth for us. It should make us very happy. A lot of things make us happy in life. We should be very happy about this. Give you a very brief Romans outline. It's going to be in your sermon outline pretty much throughout the whole series. It is really like a road map. We're going to keep on looking at it. And it is theological and practical from start to finish. Believing the gospel, resting in the gospel, rejoicing in the gospel, living the gospel. We dove into the first seven verses, uh, which highlight Paul's identity, Christ's identity, and the believer's identity. Paul identifies himself as a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. He identifies Jesus. This was the big part of last week. God's son descended from David, declared the Son of God in power, Lord over all. That should make us very happy. It should make us joyful. And then the believer's identity, which are some deep truths about, about those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're called to belong to Jesus. You're chosen, you're elect. That should make you very happy. Loved by God. Called as holy ones, meaning you're being progressively made more like Jesus, by God, being sanctified, and you're recipients of grace and, tr- and peace. This should make us very happy. Everybody's happy now, right? Some of you didn't come in, you're happy, now you're happy. That's how it should be. Paul puts feet to facts that are declared in the opening salutation there. In, in verses 1 through 7, he proclaims facts, and in verses 8 through 15, he expresses this eager relational longing that's based on those facts. And he stuffs this letter chock full of verbs that express emotion and desire. When you come to faith in Christ, your life is changed. Not just your Sunday life, not just your Wednesday night life, your entire life. And your emotions change, your desires change, your, your, the things you want to do, the things you want to say. And so he He thanks God, he serves God, he prays, he longs, he plans, and he is very, very eager to preach the gospel. And the key to understanding this passage is you want to see how the facts proclaimed in the first seven verses lead to the eagerness in verses 8 through 15. A true servant of God longs to see and serve God's people. Christians should long to see and serve God's people. In verses 8 through 15, we really see three truths about Paul's true servanthood that should be true of us as well. First, he served God. Second, he wanted to see God's people. And third, he wanted to serve God's people. That's our outline today. First, he served God. Verses 8 and 9. He starts verse 8 with the word first, and you'd think that that would imply a series of thoughts, first, second, third, fourth, but he doesn't give you more thoughts, and and he's basically saying, I've got one primary thing to say to you as I begin this letter. Think of this as of primary importance as I start off this letter. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. It's a statement of personal love for Jesus and trust in him. Thanks to Jesus, the one who has created access to God for such thanks to be offered. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ 
for all of you. And here he is going to give the, the reason for his thanks. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Believers in Rome had bowed the knee to Christ instead of Caesar. This would have become known in the church and elsewhere, uh, discussed by unbelievers in the public square. Who are these people? They need to be dealt with. And Paul and the church in Rome lived their testimony. Can the same be true of us? For them it was, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. And I think for us today, in 2017, I think it's fair enough to say, is my faith proclaimed on my block? And in my immediate community, and in the areas that I am being associated with people, is, is my faith proclaimed in those realms? If not, something's wrong. You'll notice the theme of all continues here. In, in, in the last week, we looked at it in all the Gentiles, verse 5. You also, verse 6. All in Rome, verse 7. And then verse 8. All of you all over the world, basically. Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish, verse 14. And, and all of you in Rome, verse 15. Because all kinds of people had yielded in obedience of faith. You remember this, that obedience of faith is, is the goal and, and it is also the, the, uh, the bookend at the end of, of the letter in chapter 16. All kinds of people had yielded in obedience of faith to Jesus Christ as Lord. And through the preaching of the gospel, many more were going to do likewise. You notice that Paul does not say they had a particularly strong faith. He doesn't say your strong faith is being proclaimed. He just says they have it. If you've got faith in Christ, just be happy with that. You're like, but my faith isn't very strong. That's okay. The one that you have faith in is strong. It's a gift from God, your faith. It's sufficient. And that's sufficient reason to give thanks. He says, I give thanks for your faith that's being proclaimed. Theirs was a proclaimed faith. Theirs was not a particularly strong faith. There's an emphasis here on faith. He says, I'm thanking God because your faith is being reported all over the world. What does the sharing of your faith lead to? In the church, it leads to harmony and mutual encouragement. As opposed to when you boast in yourself, and that leads to division. Christopher Ashe said, when we speak of our works, we puff ourselves up. We want people to give glory to us for our initiative, our achievement, our virtue. This always leads to strife, as everyone knows from the school playground onwards. But when we speak of our faith, we proclaim the goodness of Jesus. Our faith is the conclusive proof that we contribute nothing and that God does everything. Verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. He's serving God in, in his spirit, in the gospel of his son. And, and what he is expressing here is a sincere service to God. The sincerity of his heart is he serves God. He, he uses the word serve. He's illustrating the vertical aspect. His service to God is literally worship. Worship. He's, it literally means worshipful service. 
What this means is that Paul is wholeheartedly, sincerely serving Jesus with his whole being. With his entire being. And he says, God is my witness, whom I serve, that without ceasing I mention you. Now there's purposeful prayer going on. God knows how much Paul prays for them. God knows how much I pray for you. God knows how much you pray for each other. He says, without ceasing, literally always, be comforted. This doesn't mean that you are nonstop praying, like you're only breathing and praying. What it means is that you are praying frequently, at regular intervals. It's a normal part of your life. It is, it is normal, not occasional. You are praying for fellow believers often. You know, I serve God. I worship God. Um, and he's, he's to be the audience of one, right? We're to, to, to live to the praise of his glory, to please him. And, and one of the ways I serve him is by praying for you. I've been the pastor here for 11 years. I, I've prayed too long and too hard for you to not be concerned for your welfare spiritually. And it, it is not, it's not waning, it's not diminishing. That care for your welfare is not diminishing. It's growing exponentially. That's how it should be. The more you get to know people and the more you, you love people, you're going to want to pray for them. Paul was serving God, and he was serving God as he was praying for the people. Move on to verse 10. Verses 10 and 11. Second thing Paul wanted to do is see God's people. And I know this can seem very simple, like, wait a minute, so he just wanted to see them? Yes. He wanted to see them face to face. Verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. What does that mean, that I may succeed in coming to you? Very simply, have a safe journey to you, that I get there. In fact, that same word for succeed is, is translated prosper. Third John, verse 2 there's a prayer, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. Same word there, prospers, succeed, um, and, and there that prayer is for a good, safe journey through life, not, not 100% always prosper and always be in good health, but just a prayer that God would make the journey good. And Paul is praying, I'm praying that God will make the journey good to you so that I will actually see you. Verse 11, Paul introduces the reason for wanting to come to Rome. He goes, I long to see you. I long to see you. He's, he wants to see them with his eyes. He's longing for them. He's attempting to do it. He's trying. And he's talking about face to face. Face to face. I know we live in a time where you can FaceTime and video conference and work from home in your pajamas and all that. I, I realize the time in which we live. But relationships cannot be merely virtual. Virtual connectedness only supplements connectedness already gained face to face. If you say, well, I have this relationship with this person and it's only virtual, you don't really have a relationship with them. 
You can't attend virtual church and think that you've done what Christians are supposed to do. There is a ministry of presence that happens where you bless people with your presence. Some of you are sitting here today and you're like, no one notices me. If I wasn't here, it wouldn't matter. And all I can say is, you're wrong. There are so many opportunities to have face-to-face conversations with people. That's why we visit, by the way, the homebound who can't visit us. That's why we visit prisoners in prison who can't get out and visit us. That's why we visit our loved ones and go out of our way to do so. And that's why we spend time together. He says in verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware. Like, I need you to know this. I have often intended to come to you, but have been prevented. Now, I'm the guy that tells people don't make excuses. But this is a really good one, okay? I've been prevented. Uh, Up till that point, his desire had not been realized. He wanted to do this. Move on. Number three, Paul wanted to serve the people. He wanted to see them and serve them. He says that I may impart to you, verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you. They're going to now share in, in serving Well, what does it mean that he's going to impart some spiritual gift to them? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he is going to give them salvation, the gift of salvation in in Romans 5, 15 and 16. He's not going to give them that. He's not going to give them the gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, listed in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, because only salvation and and spiritual gifts only come from God. You, You can't give that to people. So what you've got here, he wants to give a spiritual gift. Two words here. There are two separate words. Gift, charisma in Greek, means a favor bestowed. Spiritual means pertaining to the Spirit of God. So you've got a gracious gift, a favor, plus a spiritual blessing, a gift. And, and this is the only time, Romans 1.11 is the only time those two terms are used together. Other times when you hear of spiritual gifts, it's just the one word spiritual or it's the word gift. So he's referring, what is he referring to? He's referring to, here's what he's referring to. Any kind of spirit-given and empowered benefit that he could give the Roman church through preaching and teaching the word of God, through praying for them, through encouraging them, through comforting them, uh, through correcting them, through guiding them in discipleship. He wants to see them so so he can strengthen their faith. That's the goal. It's why I long to see you on Sundays and throughout the week. I don't hang out with all of you, but I hang out with many of you. To bless you. I, I know that all of you came today praying that God would make you a blessing in the gathered church. That's what Christians do. You show up because you want to be a blessing. You want to see God's people and you want to serve them by encouraging them and strengthening their faith. That's why you show up. God is multiplying opportunities for this. And, and interestingly, Paul longed to see those he'd never met. And we hide from those we see often. We avoid those we see often. Oh, they're pulling up to the house. Let's close the blinds. 
Let's let the phone, let's let the answer machine get that. They're calling us. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that weird? That, that here's Paul who longs to see believers that he's never met and he wants to see them and serve them and, and we avoid those we see often. That's weird. And, and here's what we do. We do something. We say, I blessed you. I check the box and I say, I'm done with blessing people now. We feel good about it. Say, I did something. But you know what Paul talks about? He talked about this to the Corinthians. And by the way, he was writing Romans from Corinth. He was helping a church that was struggling, to put it lightly. And he talks about willingly spending and being spent for their souls. And, and he keeps giving and giving and giving. It's like the giving tree. <laughs> the question for us is, what am I doing for no kudos? What am I doing for no recognition? For that audience of one that only God would be pleased and his people built up. What's my motive? Some of you are going to be tempted to say, you know, I just don't have the capacity that some people have. And I would just say, your capacity to bless people empowered by the Spirit is far greater than you think. And I would also say if you are the type of person that just does everything with everyone, rest is also a spiritual blessing from God. Let someone else have, have the ball sometimes, okay? Look at verse 12. He says, basically saying, in other words, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He's writing to this church he's never met, and he said, I want to see you, and I want to be mutually encouraged. So it's not a one-way street here. He's going to serve via giving, and he's going to serve via receiving. That's why I long to see you on Sundays and throughout the week, not only to have the, the opportunity to bless you, but to be blessed by you. Two-way street, not, not a one-sided situation. Think of a relationship where there's just one-sided giving. No appropriate give and take. You're going to say, well, I'm going to quit trying. I'm going to quit calling. I'm going to quit writing. I'm not, I'm not getting much love back here. Friendship assumes mutuality. People grow by God's word and prayer and in relationship. And think about this, the word of God in your life is like a guardrail. You take it down to your ruin. You leave it up to your transformation. Relationships in the body of Christ are also like guardrails. You take those down to your ruin and you leave them up to your transformation because, because God uses fellow believers to encourage one another's faith. You have a spiritual gift or gifts in order to build up the body of Christ so that they, in turn, can go out and serve and, and bless others and bless to the ends of the earth. Those who are forgiven much, Jesus said, love much, and those who are forgiven little, love little. You're loved by Jesus so much, you're forgiven by Jesus so much, you want to be encouraged in the body of Christ, and, where, and, and here's what happens in the body of Christ. We are not talking about, hey, buddy, high five, 
how you doing? Good? Great. Me too. See you next week. This is not what we're talking about. If you think that's what life in the body of Christ is, you are so wrong. It's just the way it is. I am not afraid to tell you this. It's true. If you come to grace and you're like, I'm going to, you know, sing some songs, hear a sermon, grab some coffee, and go... You've got problems. I'm not angry with you about it. I'm just sad for you. When you're encouraged in the body of Christ, here's what happens. There is mutual openness for kindness. There is uh, mutual support. There is mutual confession of sin. There is mutual advice being asked for and given. There is mutual correction. There is mutual loving truth. I don't want you to miss out on all of that. God does not want you to miss out on all of that. If you're missing out on all of that, you're stunted in your growth as a Christian and you're not growing as you think you are growing. You need this. And, and you, you know you need it for? One of the reasons? So you will be unconformed to this world. Not conformed to this world, as Romans 12.1 says. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you would have freedom in Christ rather than slavery to sin, that you wouldn't succumb to Satan's wiles of stealing, killing, and destroying, but the Spirit of God would strengthen you through the body of Christ. It is not enough for you to sit in your room and read the Bible and pray and go, I'm good. No, you're not. No, you're not. Are you connected in the body of Christ? And again, I do not mean, I do not mean, with all my heart, I do not mean, hello, goodbye. The more you are truly connected, uh, deeply, not surfacy, okay? Surfacy is, is, is for babies, okay? I mean, you hold them, you, you, you feed them, you, you help them, they love you, but there's not going to be a lot of give and take there, okay? they start growing up babies grow up uh, the more you're truly connected deeply not surfacy the less you'll be conformed to the world you'll be encouraged by each other's faith and guess what will happen eye contact eye contact do you know what that is not the you know i'm looking at you and i won't stop eye contact that's very very annoying and awkward and inappropriate. <laughs> Let the record show, this is Marty Young I'm looking at, no one else in the room. Okay. Eye contact, which proves you're not hiding anything too much. Words of encouragement. Words of encouragement. Helping in tangible ways. Sharing. Boldly initiating blessing. Humbly accepting help. Opportunities abound. Organized and organic. We do have the organized types. Sunday school classes, men's and women's groups, and home groups that start this week. And my warning would be this to you. If you're one of those hyper joiners, don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. If you're an under joiner, don't underdo it. 
There's ministry of presence that God wants to be happening. And by the way, you know what happens when the Spirit of God connects people in the, in the body of Christ? Uh, the, the, the body self-corrects via accountability and trust. Look at verse 13. Paul says, in order, I want to do all of this in order that I may reap some benefit, some harvest, some fruit among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. There's a fruitful harvest going on. That's what he wants. I got to brag on two trees in my yard right now. We won't talk about the plum cot that had to get chopped down because it wouldn't bear fruit. No, we're going to talk about the um, strawberry guava, three feet high. Bought it for 20 bucks at, at Costco like five or six years ago. Uh, literally this week there was like 300 strawberry guavas. on. I've been eating them all week long. And then you got the big pomegranate tree laden with fruit. And Paul is saying, you know what? I want a fruitful harvest among you. Do you notice that? Among you. Notice. What is that harvest that he's looking for? What is it? What is the fruit that Paul is longing for? It is this. It is the work of God in changing from unrighteousness to righteousness. It is new believers and believers growing in Christ. It is that simple. I mean, why do Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches even exist? It is not to gather a crowd and be a quasi-social club. Oh, we shouldn't get too much into the word. <laughs> you might overdo it. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, purpose, Christ-centered community, intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, sacrificially serving Jesus, leading people to Christ and helping them grow. Faithful what God calls us to be and do and bringing, he bringing growth and depth, reaching more and more people so we glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel. Paul was into this. So should we be. Verse 14, he says, I am under obligation. I am in debt, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am, he's saying, I am motivated by love for Jesus, and he's drawing this logical step. He's, he's preaching Jesus, the Lord of all. He's, he's giving the gospel for all. He's the preacher for all, and he's this eager preacher who's under obligation. He's in debt. To who? To everyone. To Greeks. Educated people who speak Greek. Barbarians. You go, I didn't know there were barbarians in Rome. <laughs> I'm not talking Conan the barbarian here, okay? We're talking an insulting word that means uneducated dimwits who speak gibberish and gobbledygook. And he's not putting people down, he just knows the way people talk. And the foolish, those considered stupid by clever people. Just remember that God shamed the wise the foolishness of the message preached. He's basically saying, I want everyone to hear, and, and because why? Because all who come to Christ come empty-handed with faith or not at all. Why is Paul under obligation? What's this debt? Romans 13, 8 says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That's the same word, owe, debt, obligation. Here's a metaphor of money debt. But it doesn't pack the urgent punch that we might think. Uh, for example, if I owed you $100, you're like, you owe me 100 bucks. Give me my Benjamin. I'd be like, um, I'm not feeling like I want to right now. You're like, well, give me my money. And I'm like, I don't really want to right now. That's not what this is about. 
Let's say someone else owed you 100 bucks and they said to me, can you give this to them? Now if I hold on to it, I'm a thief. More than I was before, I guess. I'm not just a jerk, but I'm a thief. My urgency would be that I'm a steward of someone else's resources. It's not mine. I need to give you what is yours. It's like a city that's been conquered by a new king, and he says to the herald, you go tell the people that I have won and that I'm going to pardon all of them and I'm going to take care of them. Well, the herald owes it to all the citizens to tell them urgently of this good news. And if he does not, the king's going to be angered because the people will not bow the knee to him and accept his pardon. The obligation, the debt, was not that Paul borrowed anything from the Romans that he had to repay. Jesus had entrusted Paul with the gospel for the Romans. Jesus made Paul a debtor by committing the gospel to him. We are debtors. We, we kind of roll with the gospel like this. Well, if I get around to it, if the time is right, maybe I will share the gospel. Maybe I will dole out a little gospel for people. That's not how we are to look. Not how we are to think. I am a debtor. I have the gospel entrusted to me by God, and if I don't give it out, it's immoral. This is what Paul is saying. He is indebted. He is obligated. He says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Eager to preach. He's going to serve God through proclaiming the gospel. Now, it's interesting. He is addressing the city, uh, the city, the believers in the city of Rome. City jam-packed with social problems. He doesn't give them a social manifesto or an application of the social problems of that day. Here's Rome, a city of slaves, and he doesn't preach against slavery. Here's, here's Rome, a city of lust and vice, and he doesn't aim his guns at those evils. What's going on? Here's a city of egregious economic injustice, but he doesn't address that plague. Here's a city built on and prospered by war, and he doesn't speak of that either. What's going on? Paul knew that the biggest need that they had was to have the gospel applied to their situation. It is still the responsibility of the church to preach the gospel. The church advances as the gospel advances. The gospel was Paul's only solution to situational problems. So he's unashamed. You want to be unashamed of the gospel? You have to have bold confidence in the Savior who saved you and know that you are a debtor to the world to get that gospel out. And it, what will happen is it will transform the way that you approach the word of God to spend time with God. It, it, will, it will transform the way that you share the word of God with other people. See, the Bible is a gold mine of gospel glory, is it not? Who are you eager to preach the gospel to? Who are you eager to preach the gospel to with the mindset that you are obligated to do so? Coworkers, neighbors, Friends, enemies, your family. I love how Robert Murray Machane spent time in the Word with his household. I, I think I want to share something about him with you because I think it'll help you not only with your own household but with your coworkers and friends and neighbors and anyone else you run into. He had family devotions full of life and gladness to the end of his life. 
he would read the Bible with his family like a man who was looking for pieces of fine gold. And from time to time, holding up what he delighted to find. And he once said, one gem from that ocean is worth all the pebbles from earthly streams. A massive earthquake in Mexico struck without warning. You know, you live in California, you grew up in California, you know. The earthquake just strikes. But with hurricanes, it's different. Harvey, Irma, Jose, and, and, and more, Katia's next. There, there's some advance warning. Hurricane Irma, we've been watching, we've been hearing, it's kicking up the surf, it's whipping up palm trees, it's breaking things, it's spinning one confirmed tornado. It was coming towards landfall in Florida with 120 mile plus uh, hour, mile per hour winds. And, and here's the sad part. Some people ignore evacuation orders. Uh, Florida's governor, Rick Scott, warned residents in the evacuation zones, who, by, by the way, encompass 6.4 million people, one in four people in the state of Florida. And here's what he said to them. He said it yesterday. This is your last chance to make a good decision. It's your last chance to make a good decision. When you think about the gospel, and we are basically giving it out to people that might die at any moment, and it's really, if you think about it, and if you've been listening to the gospel and hearing it for a long time and rejecting it, this is your last chance to make a good decision. You don't know if y'all have another chance. I'm serious. It's true. The gospel warns and the gospel promises, and it affects everyone. So if we think about being obligated to share the gospel, we should be like Charles Spurgeon who said this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their own with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let's bring this plane in for a landing. Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 1, 8 through 15. What do you see? What do you see? You see that a true servant of God longs to see and serve God's people. They love everyone, but they have a special affinity for the family that spills out in acts of love and kindness to bless other people. And they purpose to boldly initiate blessing and humbly accept help, not just from our friends. What did Jesus say? As much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let me ask you this as we close. You just heard a sermon. What part of the sermon what point, what truth, do you say, well, I already knew that, but I'm not practicing it. I already knew it, but I'm not doing it. And then, and what fresh truth came out today that you're grappling with, the kind of truth where you say, you know, I know it's good, but I'm not really wanting to do that. My flesh doesn't want to do that. What needs to happen for your heart to be willing to do what God wants you to do? Just a couple of questions, just small little questions to, for you to, you know, think about as you go. Because we live in a world of hyper-challenging things. Hurricanes, earthquakes, heartaches. We respond in differing ways. God wants to inspire you to respond with what we would call heroism. By his spirit, through his word. Because true heroism 
is a true servant of God longing to see and serve God's people. And so Lord, we thank you that we can, can witness this heroic action on the part of Paul and be inspired to take similar action relationally with people that is simple and sustainable, willingly serve you and, and others. And we know, Lord, as we do that, as we continue to trust you step by step, we will see the path that you want us to take as we navigate this world. All for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.